I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, John Michael Seibler. Welcome back. Uh, Thanks. It's great to be here. This time, my notes say in brackets, whatever you'd like to say. So I'm glad (laughs) I'm earning your trust. Uh, This week, we're talking about the opening of the Supreme Court's new term, and Elizabeth interviewed Judge Tim Timkovich of the Tenth Circuit. So the Supreme Court is back. The uh, The SCOTUS term starts next Monday, October 1st. But of course, before then, the circus has returned to town with the reopening of Judge Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing. We're not going to get into the details of, of what's going on because the hearing is happening while we're recording this episode. Uh, so with that, let's talk about SCOTUS. Oral arguments start on Monday, and there are three pretty big cases in the first week. So first up is Weyerhaeuser versus U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. This is the Dusky Gopher Frog case. So, J.M., you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So this is a big property rights case, and it's really about whether or not the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service can designate privately owned land as the critical habitat of an endangered species that doesn't live there and can't survive there unless there are major changes to the land. Uh, Yet still, by the way, the designation may require the landowner to abandon lots of development projects. So... This all arises under the Endangered Species Act, which requires the government to list endangered and threatened species, of course. But the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service also has to designate the species critical habitat. And that's either occupied land or it can also be species that the land doesn't occupy, but is determined to be essential for the conservation of the species. Now, of course, the problem here is that this land is privately owned by Weyerhaeuser, a forest products company. Uh, and... These dusky gopher frogs are nowhere to be seen on this land. They haven't been there for 50 years. The government agrees that you'd have to burn the land and make other uh, major modifications to it if you wanted the frogs to survive there. Uh, And it so happens that this land in question is in Louisiana. It happens to be above sea level, which means it's very desirable for development in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. So there's a lot going on in the background of this case. But the two issues before the court are... One, whether or not the Endangered Species Act prohibits designation of private land as unoccupied critical habitat, if it's neither habitat nor essential to species conservation. And two, whether an agency decision not to exclude an area from critical habitat because of the economic impact analysis that the service has to do uh, is subject to judicial review. I'd also point out that I think the estimated cost to the property owners is something like in the ballpark of 30 or $40 million to, to make this land habitable, uh, which is just really incredible. Right. <laughs> yeah, the costs are really high in that case. And so the, the next day, the court's going to hear another really big case. This is Gundy against United States. This case involves a really fundamental principle of the separation of powers and one that the court hasn't meaningfully enforced since the mid-1930s called the non-delegation doctrine. And uh, that's the idea that Congress has to make the laws and can't outsource that constitutional role to the executive branch. Uh, of course, typically what the court does is it upholds statutes where Congress delegates legislative authority to an agency official, as long as Congress provides some guidance or standard called an intelligible principle that guides the discretion. So Gundy itself involves Congress's delegation of authority to the attorney general to decide how and if the comprehensive sex offender registration requirements in the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act of 2006, also known as SORNA, should apply retroactively to people sentenced before that law was enacted. Uh, Gundy's actually the third case to come before this, the court since 2010 that deals with this regulatory scheme. 
And in a case called Reynolds in 2012, uh, the court held that sex offenders convicted prior to SORNA's enactment aren't required to register before the attorney general validly specifies that SORNA's provisions apply to them. But there, Justices Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued in dissent that it's really not clear that, quote, Congress can constitutionally leave it to the attorney general to decide with no statutory standard whatever governing his discretion whether a criminal statute will or will not apply to certain individuals. That seems to me sailing close to the wind with regard to the principle that legislative powers are non-delegable. And Justice Neil Gorsuch also raised similar concerns about this in a case uh, called Nichols when he was on the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. And there, Gorsuch noted uh, in dissent from denial of an en banc rehearing that the statute does lack adequate guidance uh, or an intelligible principle. And so perhaps the Supreme Court will say the same in Gundy. Definitely not a sympathetic uh, plaintiff in the case. Uh, you know, this is the, the type of individual that um, that we would want to be able to, you know, have him register and know where he's, you know, working and, and living and going to school. Um, but ne- nevertheless, it's an important uh, constitutional principle at stake. And then there's Nick versus Township of Scott, Pennsylvania. This case involves one of the most basic aspects of the right to own property, and that's the right to decide who can and can't come on your land. So the township of Scott passed an ordinance uh, a few years ago requiring any property with a cemetery on it uh, that it must be open to the public during daylight hours. So Rosemary Nick uh, owns 90 acres in the township, and township enforcement agents stormed her property looking for signs of a cemetery. I guess they got uh, a tip to one of their (laughs) cemetery tip lines. Uh, They found some stones that they claim are grave markers, but she disputes that. She says, nope. That's not a cemetery. Those are just stones. So that's the background of the case. But the issue that's before the the court is a requirement that property owners must exhaust their takings claims, so Fifth Amendment takings claims, in state court before coming to the federal court. Now, in this case, the state court was unwilling to rule on her claims because the the township had not filed an enforcement action against her. And Miss Nick argues that uh, this effectively bars the doors to federal courts for property owners like her and others, uh, and she should be able to make uh, to press her constitutional claims in federal court. Man, when there's something strange on your backyard, who are you going to call? <laughs> Township of Scott uh, property enforcement agents. <laughs> <laughs> so the court also announced it's adding five more cases to the docket this term, this morning. Uh, yeah, we took a look at them. Uh, nothing terribly exciting, although there is one yeah. that caught my eye. Tennessee Wine and Spirits Retailers Association versus Bird. And this is looking at whether the 21st Amendment empowers states to regulate liquor sales by granting retail or wholesale licenses only to individuals or entities that have resided in state for a specified period of time. It's not every day that you see a case citing the 21st Amendment. So we'll keep an eye on that one. How thrilling. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we'll move on to uh, to our interview. I recently spoke with Chief Judge Tim Timkovich of the Tenth Circuit when he was in town for a conference at George Mason University. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Judge Timkovich. Thank you. First off, if you hadn't become a lawyer, what do you think you'd be doing today? Well, I'm a native third generation Coloradan, so the first thing that comes to mind is ski instructor at Breckenridge. No, if it, well, if it weren't that, then maybe a master sommelier. That's probably not what you're looking for. Um, if I no, I love it. I love it. If I weren't a lawyer, um, I think I'd like to be the uh, chairman of the Fed um, and teach economics at uh, at George Mason University. Uh, George Mason, my my alma mater, great school. 
So before becoming a judge, you served as the Solicitor General of Colorado, and you argued two cases before the Supreme Court. Tell me about what it was like being on that side of the bench. I had a great opportunity as the Colorado Solicitor General to represent the state of Colorado in all litigation matters um, against it. I had two cases in the U.S. Supreme Court, as you mentioned, during my term as Solicitor General. The first was an interesting case called Nebraska versus Wyoming and Colorado, and it was an original proceeding brought in the Supreme Court to resolve water disputes among the states involving the uh, Platte River drainage. Uh, I went to Washington, D.C. to argue the case, uh, and I have to say it was my first uh, argument in the Supreme Court. I was probably a little nervous, um, but excited at the same time. Walked up the steps, uh, entered the courtroom, took my seat. Uh, there were many other lawyers there, obviously, um, involved in that case because it had uh, many different parties. I gave my argument. I thought it went well. And afterwards, after breathing a sigh of relief, uh, I walked out uh, of the courtroom. And you can exit the Supreme Court building um, at the top of the grand main front entrance, and it was a beautiful spring day. Uh, I looked out over the U.S. Capitol. The marble was gleaming, and as I was taking it all in, just experiencing my first argument, a group of students uh, walked up behind me, high school students that were visiting the Supreme Court uh, for a school project, and one of the young uh, girls turned to her friend and said, sigh, that was the most boring argument I've ever heard. Um, so that certainly uh, deflated me. My second argument was not considered boring. It was in a case called Romer versus Evans, and it was a challenge to a Colorado uh, state-adopted initiative that um, regulated um, civil liberties on the basis of sexual orientation. Um, that case was considered one of the um, uh, top landmark cases of the term and had a much different uh, ambiance to it. I bet it did. <laughs> so in your post, uh, in addition to your post as Solicitor General, you've been in private practice, you've been a law professor, and now a judge. What has been your favorite position in your career? Well, I've uh, been very lucky to have um, many different legal experiences and a chance to be in the private sector and the public sector and in, in the uh, judiciary has just been um, a wonderful opportunity for me to do um, three um, completely different uh, legal roles within a career. Um, I can't pick a favorite, although it's pretty t it's pretty tough to uh, not be the uh, chief judge of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, but I was blessed to start as a law clerk, which I hope we can get into um, at the state Supreme Court. I was able to um, practice what was then a large firm in Denver, and really um, develop great mentoring opportunities and legal skills. Certainly, being um, the state's public lawyer for the uh, Colorado Attorney General's office and representing the state um, was a career highlight. After that, I started my own law firm. So um, I just didn't um, uh, join an established practice. I went really um, in an entrepreneurial way, uh, developed my own practice, and, um, and really enjoyed that very much until I had the opportunity to be nominated for the uh, 10th Circuit um, vacancy in Colorado in 2001. So you've been chief judge for a few years now. How, how are you liking that position? It's been more good than bad. Um, it's had some um, great challenges, but it's been a, a tremendous opportunity. I love uh, the opportunity to lead um, what I think is one of the finest circuit courts in the land. We have a tremendously varied and interesting docket. Uh, my judges come from 
um, all different walks of life and back, legal background and um, are just tremendous men and women to uh, work with. And um, although the administrative side of the job can sometimes be um, a bit of a grind, it's an interesting con contrast from what we do uh, most of the time, which is reading briefs and um, uh, writing our dispositions. So you teach election law at the University of Colorado School of Law. Uh, what drew you to that area of the law? That's a great question. Um, the uh, case I mentioned earlier, Romer versus Evans, um, actually um, found its way to the United States Supreme Court, not as an equal protection case initially, um, but as a case involving the political participation theory that was adopted by the Colorado Supreme Court. Um, so what that meant was that the case um, in its iterations below was primarily focused on whether the um, the initiative in question had impinged on the electoral opportunities of people based on sexual orientation. So um, the legal issues were very much an electoral election law related issue. Um, also in the, my capacity as Solicitor General, I represented uh, most of the state um, elected officials, the governor, the secretary of state, the treasurer. And so I developed really a, a, a strong connection to elected official elected officials, and it was natural when I started my law firm then to turn to those experiences, and I was one of the early innovators in developing an election law practice. This was in the mid-90s, and there wasn't a whole lot of um, lawyers that specialized in that area. Um, we saw the rise of um, more extensive campaign finance regulations in the 90s, so there was a natural opportunity for additional legal work. And so um, I developed a really um, interesting and successful practice in that area. And um, I was, I'm glad to continue um, teaching in that area at the University of Colorado Law School. So I read that you have hosted judicial delegations from a number of other countries, Russia, Kazakhstan, Afghanistan. How did this come about? And tell me about what sort of things you talk about with, with judges from other countries. I've had an opportunity to, to do extensive international work um, as a judge. Um, initially, when I came onto the court, um, there was a very robust program involving um, USAID, um, Agency for International Development, and other groups that were sponsoring um, judicial delegations from the um, former Soviet republics that were developing new emerging democracies. And people, judges from those countries, were interested in coming to the United States and meeting with uh, their counterparts and peers to um, develop their ideas about um, their new uh, judiciaries. Denver was a natural uh, visiting spot, not only because it's, it's beautiful and, uh, <laughs> and scenic, um, but we have our, all of our state and federal uh, judicial entities in, in the city of Denver, so it's very easy for a judicial delegation to be exposed to um, state and federal um, judicial issues. Um, after that experience, I've had the opportunity to um, also visit um, countries as a part of um, our outreach. And I've had the chance to visit the Ukraine um, three times since I've been a judge, most recently um, in uh, May of, of 2018. Uh, it turns out that my uh, family heritage is Ukrainian, and so an opportunity for me to go to that country, meet with, uh, with Ukrainian counterparts, and help them as they're trying to develop a free and independent judiciary has been a, uh, just a wonderful professional and personal experience. In this trip uh, that I took in May, um, I had an opportunity to actually visit the family village where my grandfather had emigrated from in 1913. And um, 
no, no one in my family had ever returned to the village, and I had an opportunity to spend a day there and get a tour. When I arrived at the village for the tour, um, our tour guide, who happened to be a local high school history teacher, um, had done her research about me, and it turns out there were numerous family members that were still alive and lived in the village, and when I exited the van to uh, meet with my tour guide, she introduced me to all these long-lost cousins that uh, nobody knew had, still existed. And so it was a family re reunification uh, experience, and um, I'm still very stunned and moved by the um, experience and look forward to maybe going back and visiting again. That's really cool. Uh, did you see any family resemblance in these uh extended cousins. I did. When I showed the pictures to my father, he said, oh, that looks like my Uncle William. <laughs> That's great. So uh, do you have a favorite Ukrainian dish you might recommend for listeners? Oh, everybody loves the pierogi. Um, they call it varinky there, but it's a, a, a dough filled with uh, potato and cheese and served with uh, grilled onions and sour cream, not to be missed. Mm, I'm getting hungry. So earlier you mentioned that you had been a law clerk. Uh, earlier in your career, and you clerked for Colorado Supreme Court Justice William Erickson. Tell me about him. Yes, uh, I did a one-year clerkship with Chief Justice Erickson on the Colorado Supreme Court right after I graduated from the University of Colorado Law School. Uh, it was really one of the most transformative experiences of my life, and I was uh, so fortunate to have a chance to clerk for a person who was a wonderful man and a wonderful lawyer and became a life, lifelong mentor to me. Uh, I joke that I didn't make a sing, single uh, uh, decision without consulting him uh, in the time from my clerkship till the time that he passed away um, a few years ago. I recently was asked by the um, Colorado Lawyer, which is the legal magazine for the Colorado Bar Association, to write a profile of Justice Erickson on the 10th uh, anniversary of his death. And reflecting on his career, uh, and his character um, really um, exemplified for me what a lawyer's lawyer and a judge's judge could be. Um, Justice Erickson not only was one of the finest advocates uh, in Colorado and in the region as a lawyer, um, but he took on unpopular causes. He represented uh, the, murder, the um, accused killer of um, Adolf Coors in one of the most notorious um, criminal cases of the era, um, a case that really cost him uh, many friendships, and people um, were not sure he should be representing um, the accused in that case, but he did. He became a leader in the bar. Um, he was a national leader and taught judges uh, that were just coming onto the bench. And finally, at the end of his career, after he had retired, he was asked by Governor Bill Owens to look at the um, situation involving the aftermath of the Columbine High School mass shootings, and uh, Justice Erickson chaired the Columbine Review Commission and undertook what I think is a very important review uh, process that led to many recommendations that uh, I think have had a direct and beneficial impact on um, how communities uh, react and try to protect themselves against mass shootings. So let's talk about your law clerks. Uh, do you have any traditions you've developed with them? Well, I just finished my 15th year on the Tenth Circuit, and I had a reunion in Denver, and it was so gratifying to um, see so many of my clerk family return uh, to the Byron White Courthouse and celebrate 15 years. I have 60-plus or so of them, so it's a, a growing family, and what I call my many grand clerks, their children, um, as the clerks grow older, many have started families. Um, 
they, we've always been a very active chambers. We ski together, we hike together, uh, we ride bicycles together, and uh, I, I take my clerks uh, skiing every year. And uh, that's probably a tradition a lot of them would uh, talk about. Uh, many of them are here in Washington, D.C., and so I take every opportunity I can when I visit the, um, uh, the district to get together with my local clerks. Um, as I tell them when they leave at the end of their year, um, I'm not going to cry because I know I'm going to see you very soon, and I do. I, I try to stay uh, in touch with all, all of my clerks. Now, I've heard that you and Justice Gorsuch, when he was on the Tenth Circuit, you used to take your clerks on a ski trip together. Uh, are you still doing that, or are you going uh, just alone with your clerks now? Well, I talk about a great tradition. Um, when Judge Gorsuch came onto the Tenth Circuit in 2006, um, in kind of developing a relationship with him uh, as a judicial colleague, um, previously as a friend, um, we discovered that we um, love to ski, uh, and uh, we started an annual uh, ski trip involving our his first set of clerks and uh, my third or fourth set of clerks. And every year since then, um, with the notable exception of 2017 when he was involved in his confirmation hearings, we've had our um, Gorsuch-Timkovich uh, uh, ski trip, and it's been a great tradition, and uh, many of his clerks enjoy coming back to Colorado um, and taking the opportunity to, to um, interact with us in a in a informal and fun environment. Are many of your other colleagues on the Tenth Circuit as outdoorsy and active as you? Um, I think a lot of them are in different ways. We have um, some of the best fly fishermen in the, <laughs> the federal judiciary. I'd say some of the best skiers, um, raft, uh, people that raft and, and hikers. So yeah, I think uh, the Western uh, lifestyle is, uh, has generated a lot of uh, terrific judicial athletes. That's really great. So a lot of our listeners are law students and, and young lawyers. So do you have any must-read book suggestions uh, for young lawyers just starting out? That's an interesting question because there's um, so much that you could uh, recommend to a young lawyer starting out. Uh, I guess I'd think about your question um, in a couple of different categories. And I'd say, um, first, many of them, since we're doing this interview at the Antonin Scalia uh, school of Law that I would recommend that reading law be uh, high on your list because it uh, teaches you about text, legal text, and interpretation. I also think that you should never um, uh, forget that there are great lessons to be learned um, in great literature. And I might recommend Melville's Billy Budd and Dostoevsky's brothers Karamazov. Um, they talk about order and liberty, justice, the adversary system, uh, and the rule of law. A great narrative history that I read as a young lawyer, um, Richard Klugar's Simple Justice, um, is the story of the um, Civil Rights um, Act and the um, culminating in the Brown versus Board of Education uh, decision. And then finally, maybe from a philosophical standpoint, I would recommend that a student pick up uh, Hayek's The Constitution of Liberty and learn about some other theories of, of justice. So one final question that we ask all of our guests on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a, a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Well, I'd start with, um, for the um, living justices, I'd start first with my old friend, Justice Neil Gorsuch. <laughs> and uh, a, a justice on the court needs a friend, and we've been friends for a long time, so I'd enjoy uh, having a conversation with him about skiing and wine and fly fishing. Um, 
going back a ways, um, the two that I would be very much interested in talking to, the first would be John Harlan, uh, the first John Harlan. And uh, Justice Harlan uh, served in the 20 years or so in the uh, uh, at the end of the uh, 19th century. And, of course, he started out as a slave owner in Kentucky um, as part of his family and ended up writing The Great Descent in Plessy versus Ferguson. I'd love to sit down with him and talk about the evolution of his legal thinking that culminated uh, in that descent, which was one of the most important writings in the history of the U.S. Supreme Court. More recently, uh, I'd love to sit down with Justice Felix Frankfurter, as an election law teacher, I start with Reynolds versus Sims and uh, Baker versus Carr, two of the seminal cases developing the one person, one vote doctrine. Um, Justice uh, Frankfurter was also on the court for Brown versus Board of Education. Um, so I'd like to find out what uh, a fly on the wall could learn from the discussions that he had in resolving those cases and the approaches that he took. Um, and then finally, um, since it's a hypothetical, I'd ask him whether he thought those cases um, had stood the test of time with their reasoning and their outcome and whether he would have changed any uh, of his thinking about those cases in light of subsequent history. That's great. Well, as a Kentuckian, I, I would also love to have a conversation with Justice Harlan. Uh, well, Judge Timkovich, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, beginning of term edition, and I'm going to try to stump John Michael. <laughs> Are you ready? Ready as I will ever be. <laughs> Although for, hopefully that's not actually true. <laughs> thanks for being a good sport. Um, okay, so these are all questions about the, you know, surrounding the uh, beginning of the term uh, or um, arguing at the court. Okay, so first question. Where does the annual red mass take place before the start of the new term? Mm. Um, I'll guess National Cathedral in all red mass. I actually don't know this. Where is it? So when you say National Cathedral, what church are you referring to? Uh, the big Catholic one up by all the embassies. The big Catholic the big one Catholic by, church. by all the embassies. Yeah. Are you talking about the one uh, that's kind of near Georgetown? Because mm-hmm. that one's not Catholic. That's the National Cathedral, but it's not Catholic. Well, I'll have to show you mm-hmm. some pictures. Side note, I don't drive in D.C., so my geography is really <laughs> only limited to Capitol Hill. <laughs> okay, well, you're right that I it's— I see it sometimes, off in the distance. You're, you're right that it's the cathedral. It's the Cathedral of St. Matthew the Apostle, which is— I think uh, near Connecticut Avenue. I, I'm trying to think what what cross street. It's around like 16th and Connecticut or something like that. Um, so I, I'm not sure it's the one you're thinking of, but I'm going to go ahead yeah. and give you credit for that because it is the cathedral. Okay. You probably shouldn't, but I'm glad I just went with cathedral. <laughs> Generic cathedral. And I'm still not going to leave Capitol Hill to find out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so the Red Mass, of course, is the mass celebrating members of the legal profession. And many of the Supreme Court justices a- attend this mass. In fact, Ruth Bader Ginsburg used to attend it. Um, even though she's, of course, not Catholic. Uh, but apparently, I, I read that she stopped attending when there was a, a homily one year and there were pictures of um, of fetuses, that, you know, that were trotted out as part of the homily. And uh, she's, you know, a staunch uh, defender of abortion, mm-hmm. and she was a little offended by that. So mm. uh, anyway, moving on to question number two. Until the 1960s, oral arguments did not occur on first Monday. What did the justices do on this first day? Instead of arguments. Hmm. There's a couple things. So if you get like one, I'll give you credit. So I think it was it was a ceremonial day. Did they go to the White House? 
Uh, yes. Is it the White House? Did you read the uh, Supreme Court uh, Historical Society page on this? Uh, You know, I'm going to say you're not the only one who's visited uh, that particular website. (laughs) (laughs) I shouldn't have told you what the the theme of trivia was. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so that's uh, one of the things was an adjournment for a visit to the White House. And the justices would also hear motions for admissions to the Supreme Court bar. And they would also frequently have tributes to uh, recently deceased justices and other court officers. Third question. Mm -hmm. Today, the court begins its term on the first Monday in October. But that wasn't always the case. When did the court originally begin its term? Ooh, originally? Yes. Mm. It has fluctuated over the years. Yeah, it's changed around, right? So I'm talking— In winter— I'm talking originally. Although there were two, uh, two terms originally, weren't there? You're giving me there a were. look. There were. There were. But I think that it started in the winter, in like January or, or February. Yeah, that, that's good. So 1791, the court met on the first Monday of February, and then its second session began in August. And it wasn't until 1916 that October became the official start of the term. Hmm. Okay, so fourth question. This is uh, a little off topic, but um, I want to thank our interns for helping me come up with these. Uh, I, I just thought it was it was interesting, uh, so we wanted to go ahead and include it anyway. Typically, only attorneys with the federal government wear formal morning clothes for oral arguments today, but that wasn't always the case. Can you name the senator who used to say that he was refused admission to the court when he arrived wearing street clothes uh, when he came to argue a case <laughs> in 1890? Curse you interns. I'm going to have to talk with them. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I I don't think I'll even try that one. Who was it? So I'll give you a hint, um, if you can get part of his name. There's a famous business school named, uh, I don't know if it's named after him, but mm. it's named after part of his name. It's in on the East Coast. It's only I'm a, just thinking a, of famous two business schools. Right will, two states away from us right now. Wharton? <laughs> yes. Senator so Wharton. it was Senator George Wharton Pepper of Pennsylvania. And I'm going to go ahead and assume that the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business is connected to his family. Surely named for this incident. I would think so. Uh, so apparently uh, when Senator uh, Pepper, who was you know a young attorney at the time, he, he came to the court uh, to argue. And apparently Justice Horace Gray was overheard saying to a colleague, who is that beast who dares to come in here with a gray coat? <laughs> so uh, no word on uh, if he ended up borrowing morning clothes or, or what he ended up doing. Um, but anyway, I think you did a pretty good job. Well, thank you. And thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. And please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101. You can also email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org. 